Well, we're deep into vacation season, that time of year when Americans leave their work and go off to, to, to rest and recreate. The Lawrence family leaves at 4 a.m. in the morning for our vacation. So it seems an appropriate time to ask the question, what are you working for? Since we're all busy trying to figure out how to take some time off of work, what, in fact, are you working for? Is it just to put a roof over your head, food on the table, or is it something more? I think, actually, the proof that it's something more is found in the the roughly half the people that are sitting in this room right now who are not currently working for money, whether by choice or not. Even for the other half of the people in the room who are not currently working for a paycheck, that they they still have this desire. I, I'm sure of it because uh, I'm, I'm married to one, right? That they still have this desire, this need to every day get up and though there's no paycheck involved, be productive. The, the fact that that desire to be productive is there even when no paycheck is there suggests that for all of us, there's something more going on than money. At the very beginning of our national life together, we declared that the pursuit of happiness was an inalienable right of all people. Now, I think embedded in that word pursuit there is the notion of productivity, the, the, the recognition that all people not only want to pursue happiness, but all, all people want to be Productive. After all, happiness doesn't just happen. Right? Happiness doesn't just find me. I've got to go out and make it happen. I have to go out there and in one way or another produce a happy life. So I think it's actually true and not just the mantra of the workaholics that we don't work to live. We live to work. It's true for all of us. Not just for a paycheck, but in that pursuit of, well, what our founding fathers called happiness, meaning, purpose in life. So I'll ask you again. What are you working for? What makes your life productive? whether you're getting a paycheck for it or not. Well, this summer, we've been considering our life together as a church. We've been using the book of Titus, and this morning we come to the very last in our studies. We're concluding it this morning, and we actually come here at the end of of Paul's letter to the question of what it means for us as Christians, not just as human beings, but as Christians, to live productive lives. If if you would turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Verse 9, if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, that's found on page 1,859, 1,859, Titus chapter 3, verse 9. I'm going to finish the, finish the letter. I'll read to the very end. Titus 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies. And genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time. 
After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. In these final verses of this letter that we've spent the whole summer going through so far, Paul Paul concludes by giving some very specific instructions to different groups of people. He actually speaks to three different groups here. First, he speaks to Titus in verses uh, 9 to 11 directly. And then uh, he he talks about a bunch of itinerant ministers. There, There are four of them that he mentions. And then third... He speaks directly to the, about the congregations there in Crete, the, the various churches that Titus is there to help. Now, a lot of what he says here in these final verses honestly seems like fairly irrelevant travel information for us. But actually, I think you're going to be surprised as we, as we dig into the details of these verses. Paul has a lot to say. And specifically, as he speaks to these three different groups of people, He has a lot to say to us about what the productive Christian life looks like. So we'll just take it group by group. And first there's Titus. What does he have to say finally to Titus? Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. All right, then, a productive Christian life, first, a productive Christian life guards the gospel. That's really the first point. A productive Christian life guards the gospel. Paul instructs Titus to do two things in these three verses. He's to avoid foolish controversies, literally stupid controversies, moronic controversies and then and then second he's to have nothing to do with people who persist in such controversies now the reason isn't because paul's not into theology you know there are people out there that say oh no i never talk about theology it's bad to argue about theology paul doesn't say don't talk about theology he says don't avoid in 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 foolish arguments he's actually been talking theology this whole letter he's been In fact, making the point of the importance of theology. He couldn't be clearer, I think, as we as we work through this letter, that sound theology is essential for us as Christians if we are going to live godly lives, if we're going to live productive lives. And that's actually why he's making the point he's making here. It has to do, honestly, with the importance of theology, not the unimportance of it. Paul tells Titus to avoid engaging in controversy with false teachers and those who have been influenced by them. As he describes what's going on here, the kind of controversies that that, uh, Titus might be pulled into, it reminds us immediately of those false teachers that he talked about back in in chapter 1. Rebellious people, mere talkers, deceivers, those of the circumcision group, 
ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. Myths, Jewish myths, and the commands of those who reject the truth. So so Paul's warning Titus to avoid their debates. He's not to even enter into the debates with these false teachers and those who have been influenced by them. Instead of of trying to get in there and and argue their their fine points and their their subtle nuances, instead, Paul tells Titus, warn them. Don't argue with them. Don't don't try to get in there and and figure it out with them on their terms. No, you just just get straight to the point. Warn them. Warn them of their error. Warn them of their foolishness. Once, and then twice, and then if they persist in this error, if they refuse to heed his warning, Paul tells Titus that they are to be put out of the church. That's the intent of verse 10 when he says, have nothing more to do with them. This isn't sort of Amish-style social shunning. Paul's talking about church discipline here. Removing these people from the, the membership of the church. And, and that means far more than just erasing their, their name from a list. It means the church publicly declaring, we can no longer assure you that you are a Christian. Because of your insistence on persisting in this error. That's what Paul's saying here. The, the entire letter. Especially chapters 2 and 3, Paul has been telling Titus what he should teach positively in the conviction, as he said right there at the beginning of chapter 1, in the conviction that knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. That's the, the very first sentence. He's a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ with the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. This is what Paul has been about his entire letter. But right here now at the end, Paul reminds Titus, and and honestly, he reminds us, that it's not just about positively teaching the gospel, teaching the truth. If we don't guard the gospel uh, against those who would destroy the church through, through division and false teaching, then we won't have a gospel left to teach. And we won't have a church left to proclaim that gospel. And and so he he says something, I, I think that's very radical. To our modern ears. He says that persistence in false belief. Just as much as persistence in immoral behavior. Warrants church discipline. Because persisting in false belief. Just as much as persisting in immoral behavior. Is evidence. That a person has turned away from God. Paul describes them right there. They've, they've become warped. They are continuing in a life of sin. They, they haven't been rescued from that life of sin. They're actually giving evidence that they never left it in the first place. That they are still in that life of sin. And what he's pointing to here is not finally their behavior. But their beliefs. They're persisting in error. And especially when that false teaching, that, that, that wrong belief, becomes a cause, as it apparently has become for some of these people. It's become a banner 
that they are trying to attract other people to in order to divide the church, in order to pull people away from the truth. We need to understand that very clearly, according to the New Testament, error does not have squatter's rights. All right? Error does not have squatter's rights. Now, under, under our Constitution, we, we have freedom of speech. So, so under our Constitution, error does have squatter's rights. So, so as Christians, we're, we're not trying to shut down freedom of speech in, in the public square. People are free to teach all sorts of error. But not here. Here, inside the church, error does not have squatter's rights. Paul says that that such error is is useless. Unlike the gospel, which he was talking about in the verses right before this, we're kind of jumping back into this argument. Unlike the gospel, which in verse 8 he made the point is, is profitable for everyone, error profits no one. That's what he says. It is unprofitable. It merely destroys. Now, in in Titus' context, the church is there in in Crete. The the theological error and, and the division revolved around wrong teaching on the Old Testament, wrong teaching about the law, and, and, and Jewish genealogies, uh, myths about, uh, about what, what the patriarchs might have done or said and how that should now influence our lives as, as followers of God. But those are not the controversies that we are tempted to get into these days for the most part, I think. What, what, what sort of foolish controversies are we likely to run into today, even here at Henson? What, what sort of... Of, of dissension and controversy are, are we going to be tempted to be pulled into here? Well, I, there, there are all sorts of things out there, aren't there, that, that would encourage us to seek our godliness in something other than the gospel. Now, that's still going on. Uh, we, we, honestly, we call it legalism. Legalism was a problem in Paul's day. It's a problem today. The form of the legalism may look different, but but it's basically the same problem. Seeking our godliness in in cultural standards that are out there. Seeking uh, our godliness in a kind of legalism about about what we eat or what we drink or or how we dress. There are other sorts of controversies, though, that, that as I look around the church these days, that seem to be attracting a lot of attention. There's a lot of false teaching out there these days about Jesus Christ and whether or not he makes exclusive claims. Whether or not, in fact, Jesus is the only way to heaven. It's a very unpopular idea. You just have to think about it for a few seconds to figure out why it's such an unpopular idea. And so, of course, there are many, even inside the church today, that, that suggest that, well, you know, maybe we should rethink that. Maybe we should take a different approach. There's, there's false teaching out there about prosperity. Teaching that if, if you become a Christian, if you believe in the gospel, if you just pray the right way, God will make you rich. God will make your life better. Teaching that, that suggests we should seek our best life now. A lot of controversy there. Uh, there there's, there's controversy these days about heaven and hell. 
I, I have noticed, maybe you've noticed this too, that people don't seem to want to get rid of heaven. They want to get rid of hell. Right? And so, even inside the church, a, a, a growing body of teaching that's going on, suggesting that maybe there's not a hell, or if there is a hell, in the end, no one will be there. Well, maybe a few people. You know, maybe, maybe a Hitler, or a Pol Pot, or, or a Stalin, or, or your favorite mass murderer. But basically, nobody else is going to be there. A lot of controversy out there over these things. There's even controversy over how we define the gospel. What is the gospel? What does somebody need to believe in order to be saved? I think, though, as I step back from those, those theological controversies, and I just stare at, at our church, and I think about our context here in Portland, my, my guess is that for most of us, the thing that would, that would lead us to controversy inside the church, the thing that someone might become divisive over inside the church, is, is not going to be one of those arcane or not so arcane points of theology. It, it, it's rather going to be a matter of wisdom. You know, some, some prudential teaching that in and of itself is good. But then all of a sudden, in our own minds, it's elevated to the level of dogma. And now everybody's got to agree with me. And, and I'm going to stir things up. I'm going to cause trouble if they don't. What sort of things are, are, are that maybe here? Well, there, there's so many ways we can get tri- tripped up here. Because there's so many things that as individuals we have to think through, and make a decision on, kind of, kind of come to a conviction about and boy, once I come to a conviction about something, I want everybody else to have that same conviction. Maybe it's the conviction of how children should be educated. I mean, parents spend a lot of time thinking about how to school their kids. And, and once they kind of land on what's going to be best for their kids, all of a sudden it becomes important that everybody else agree. Or, or, or maybe it's, it's best practices when it comes to parenting. How are you going to raise your kids? If, if you're a parent, if you've been a parent, you know, I know, we spend a lot of time thinking about this. These are important issues, issues of wisdom. And we, we come to conclusions. We need to come to some conclusions. But it's very easy then for our, our convictions for what's going to be best for our family to all of a sudden become a, a kind of dogma. And other parents are judged according to whether or not they parent the way, you know, I parent. Politics. Another, another area of conviction. Most of us here have political convictions. That's good. You should have political convictions. You're a citizen of this nation. You have been given a stewardship. You need to think through your politics as a Christian. But can Christians disagree on politics? Or will politics become a matter of division in our church? And then there was the one that, that was most active when I got here that I don't hear much 
about anymore, which I'm thankful for. That's music. What are appropriate instruments to be used in in Christian worship? What are appropriate songs uh, to be played in, in corporate worship? Of course, we all have our favorites. We all have our favorite styles. We all have our favorite songs. It might surprise you that I don't pick all of my favorites every week. You might not be surprised that I rarely pick your favorites. Feel free to email them to me. But you know, when I arrived, there was a lot of, of tumult in this, in this congregation. A lot of angst going on in the congregation about music. Something that's really important. Something that's really good. But something that should never be a cause of division in a local church. I mean, the fact is, and I think this is where Paul's driving, if you would rend the body of Christ over the style of music, if you would rend the body of Christ over the form of school that kids are going to go to, if you would rend the body of Christ over affiliation with a political party, then I would encourage you to ask yourself the, the question, the very simple question, am I really a Christian? Am I really a Christian if I would rend the body over these sorts of good, but finally non-essential matters? So how do we guard the gospel against error and against division right here at Henson? Well, I think we need to pay attention to these verses and understand that, that actually, the, even though he's speaking to Titus, the responsibility to guard the gospel falls first on, on us as just members of, of Henson Baptist Church. We are to avoid controversy. We're not to avoid theology. As members of Henson Baptist Church, you guys should be theologians. You guys should be the sort of people that know sound theology, that recognize sound theology when you see it, that are students of sound theology. Now, that doesn't mean you have to go around reading theology textbooks all the time. That doesn't mean you have to know as much theology as as our brother Todd Miles knows. But I think it is incumbent upon each one of us to know good theology, to be students of it, to give ourselves to growing in our understanding of theology so that when, when foolish controversy shows up, we recognize it for what it is. We're not taking it because, you know, foolish controversy never presents itself as foolish controversy. Foolish controversy always presents itself as a matter of grave import, as a matter of very serious theology. Now, we need to be the kind of people that say, yeah, 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 I know you're presenting yourself that way, but you're not that way at all. You're just foolish controversy. How are you going to do that if you don't know sound theology yourself? If you've not given yourself to growing in your understanding of God's truth. So, so friends, take advantage of the opportunities we try to give you here. I mean, obviously, the Sunday morning sermons, the, the, the Sunday school classes, the Sunday seminars. We, we've got a bookstall. And, and the great thing about the bookstall is not that, that it's like Amazon and you can find anything there. The great thing about the bookstall is you can be confident that everything there is worth reading, unlike Amazon, Right? So, so we, we give time and thought and effort to making sure that, that we are being good stewards of your limited and precious reading time. 
by making sure that anything that's there is worth that time. Take advantage of these things. Be involved with one another in this. Uh, there, there are a number of people. I love it when I hear about this, and I've, and I've heard many stories, groups of guys, groups of women, taking time once a week to get together and read through a good book to, with each other, a good book on theology, a good, a good book on Scripture, so that they can grow and encourage one another in their knowledge of the truth. So when bad theology appears, you'll know that it's time to do what Paul says. Avoid it. Literally, he uses a word that means walk around it, like go out of your way to not engage with it. Shun it. We shouldn't even give it a hearing. You realize that when, when wrong thinking, wrong belief begins to divide a church, it's not just because there was one person in that church teaching false doctrine. It's because there were a group of people listening to it. We want to, we want to treat error basically the, the same way we treat gossip. We don't want to even give it a hearing. Because like gossip, if nobody's listening, they stop talking. They, they go somewhere else looking for people that will listen. That, that's our responsibility as a congregation. Avoid it. Don't even give it a hearing. Now, sometimes, though, it persists. Sometimes we've walked around the controversy, and the controversy keeps following us, right? We, we can't get away, and, and the error, uh, the wrong teaching, the wrong belief persists in our midst. So what do we do there? Well, we're to warn. I mean, basically, there in, in verse 10, Paul is taking the steps of Matthew 18 and applying it to this particular problem of false teaching, divisive false teaching. Privately, he says, that first time, just go warn them. Warn the offender. Warn the person who's trying to drag you into controversy and wrong belief. If they won't listen to your warning, then they need a second warning. And I think this is where where the elders come in. I mean, thinking about Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18, bring somebody with you. Bring an elder along. Sound teaching... Not inflamed argument is the best corrective to divisive elder. And we know already from from Paul's instructions to Titus in chapter 1, verse 9, this is what the elders are particularly for. He says there in chapter 1, verse 9, the elders are to encourage others by sound doctrine and to refute those who oppose it. So bring an elder with you if they didn't listen to your warning the first time. Our goal, of course, in this, in these warnings, is, is not to condemn people. It's not to beat people down. Our goal is to reclaim the person who's been ensnared by wrong thinking, by wrong belief. Th- this, this very situation happened pretty early on after I got here to Henson. Uh, there, there was a, a, a person in the church. I won't, I won't tell you who it is, but they're, they're not here anymore. They were not a member. Wonderful person. I really loved this person. I really enjoyed talking to this person. But this person was deeply ensnared in error about Jesus Christ. He, he was not convinced that Jesus Christ was, was fully divine. I won't go into all the details, but he wasn't convinced that Jesus Christ was fully divine. And so right away, I found myself having, having to say to this guy, hey, I, I love you. 
I, I enjoy talking to you, but, but this is false. This is, this is actually heresy. This will destroy your soul. And you are not allowed to teach it here. You are not, this church is not going to be a platform for you to push these ideas on, on other people. Now, my, my goal was not to drive him away. I, in fact, we, we even said to him, eventually some other elders had to get involved because he didn't listen to the first warning. Um, so, so some other elders got involved. And you know, what we said to him is, is, we hope you're a brother and we want you here. We want you here hearing the truth preached and taught. You, you are welcome here. But you may not teach what you're teaching. You can't do it in small groups. You cannot do it in, in informal gatherings. You certainly cannot do it in any of our classes. You may not teach this. And if you persist, well, we can't put you outside the membership of the church because you're not a member. But we will have to inform the entire church about you. We will have to warn the flock about your error. That's not what we want to do. We, we want you to hear the truth. So, so stop talking about this and just come sit under good teaching and enjoy the fellowship here and grow and learn. And he left. He's not even in the state anymore. Because that's not what he was interested in. He was interested in a following. He, he wanted, just like a gossip once, he wanted others to gather around and hear. Paul takes this very seriously, and so should we. In, in the end, Paul makes clear that there is a line that is crossed. It, it can be difficult to determine where that line is, and so we don't want to be hasty. But the line is there, and persistence in, in wrong thinking, Paul says, finally, is, is self-condemning. Why is it self-condemning? Well, it's self-condemning because the truth of the gospel is clear. It's not complicated. The truth of the gospel is clear. And so to continue to refuse it is to judge yourself as outside of the gospel and therefore outside of the church. In, in all my days as a pastor, I've only been involved in one case of church discipline for division. That finally then led to actually putting somebody outside of church membership, removing them from uh, the, the membership roles of the church. And without question, it was the hardest case of church discipline I've ever been involved with. I mean, you, you would think that really messy divorce cases or, 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 or other uh, matters of immorality would be the most difficult. Sometimes those are the saddest. But they're often pretty clear. This case of division was the hardest one I've ever been involved with. Division is dangerous precisely because it's slippery. Uh, the, the reason false teaching gains a hearing in the first place is usually there's some kernel of truth in there. there there's something that's, that's right. It's not all right. It's, it's partially right. And that, that partially right thing is attractive. It, it, gets, it gets its hooks in us. And, and then, of course, division always puts leadership in a very hard spot. Because if it's, if it's division over teaching, then it just looks like the leadership is, is shutting down free and open discussion. And if, if the division, as it so often is, is about an attack on the character of leaders in the church, 
And inevitably, in trying to deal with the division, it just looks like the leaders are being self-protective and defensive. Division is incredibly difficult to deal with in a congregation. Which is why it's so important that guarding the gospel begins not with the elders and not with church discipline, but with all of us. As we refuse to even give it a hearing in the first place. A productive life guards the gospel. Even if that means putting people that we love outside of the church because they have condemned themselves through their divisiveness. Well, second, let's let's look at this, this next group of people. Let's look at let's look at Artemis, let's look at Tychicus and Zenus and Apollos, these these itinerant ministers. Look there in verse twelve. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. A productive life not only guards the gospel, second, a productive life deploys for the gospel. A productive life deploys for the gospel. Paul's instructions are about as abrupt as they are clear here. He doesn't ask Titus. If he'd like to settle down on Crete, he makes no mention of what Artemis and Tychicus are currently doing and and how maybe they feel about a potential move to Crete. He simply starts handing out orders. This is what's going to happen. Now, this is the only mention of Artemis in the entire New Testament. Everything we know about Artemis is right there. And so moving on to Tychicus, Tychicus, we know a little bit more. Tychicus had already actually carried a letter from Paul to uh, the, the, the churches uh, around Colossae and, uh, and to Ephesus. We, we know from 2 Timothy, which was written just a few years after Titus, that Paul went on to send Titus to Dalmatia and Tychicus to Ephesus. And so by process of elimination, that probably means that Artemis was the guy that was sent to Crete. Artemis was the guy that relieved Titus so that Titus could join Paul in Nicopolis. But what's inescapable in in these two short verses is the sense that these men's lives were at the service of the gospel. They were at the service of the gospel. John Wesley said that every minister should be ready to preach, ready to pray, ready to die at a moment's notice. Like an enlisted man in the army. A minister of the gospel is to be at the service of the gospel, ready and willing to be deployed wherever and whenever there was a need of the gospel. This is Paul's attitude. Now, no doubt Titus had made good friends on Crete. He had probably many good relationships there. We don't know. I mean, maybe he was even married. Maybe he had family. A lot of these guys did. And their families had to move around with them. No, no doubt Artemis and Tychicus were well engaged wherever they were at that particular moment. But at the end of the day, it is not personal comfort or desire to, to, to be settled that determined where their lives would be spent. It was the need of the gospel. Paul had need of Titus in Nicopolis. And so new assignments were being handed out. End of story. We get the same sense with with Apollos and Zenos, like, like Paul, uh, Apollos there in, in verse 13 was a gifted itinerant preacher. He was encouraged by Paul. 
He was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila. We, we read about him in several other New Testament uh, books. And, and he was used by God. We, we know this. He was used by God to plant churches and strengthen churches all across the Mediterranean area. Zenus, like Artemis, is mentioned only here. We know he was a lawyer. And that's all we know. A little bit more than Artemis, not much. What does seem clear is that Apollos and Zenus were the ones who brought Paul's letter to Titus in the first place. They were, they were the messengers that brought this letter. And, and now they're heading on with their, their mission elsewhere. We don't know where that was or what it was. We just know Titus is to speed them along. He, he's to help them get on with their work. And friends, I think this is not just what it means to be a minister. I think this is what it means to be a Christian. Someone whose, whose life is deployed for the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I think this is one of the, the most important things for you to understand about us as Christians. We are people who have been saved by the gospel. The, the, the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, lived a perfect life, the life we should have but didn't, and then gave his life for us on the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ bore the punishment that we deserved. He endured God's wrath, a wrath that, that should be poured out on us, poured out on him instead. And then having taken our punishment and being buried in a grave, God raised him three days later from, three days later from the dead to prove that what he had done was enough. That, that the rescue mission that he had been sent on had been successful. That, that, that people like us, Christians, are now rescued from the condemnation that we deserve. We've been, to use a different image, we've been ransomed. We, we've been set free from our slavery to sin. And now, as a result of that, our lives are no longer our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to the one who's redeemed us. We belong to the one who has, who has rescued us. We're serving a different master. You know, the, the truth is, everyone serves something. The, the way the Bible talks about it, everybody either serves sin or serves God. Christians are people who have been ransomed from our slavery, our service to sin. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And we are now at the service of Jesus Christ. So what we would want to say to you, if, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, is not, oh, come over here and, and be servants with us. Like, leave your life of freedom and now become a servant. Now, what, what we're saying to you is everyone's a servant. Some of us have good masters, some of us bad ones. Leave your service of sin. Leave that cruel taskmaster. Repent. Put your faith in Christ today and join us 
in a far better service. A, a, a service that leads to life. A service that is life. Now, Henson, like these four, like Wesley's ministers, this should describe us, I think. We should be men and women who are ready to preach, ready to pray, ready to die, ready to be sent, to be deployed in the service of the one who has rescued us. Now, for some of us, I think that might mean being sent out, literally, as these guys were, sent out from home and and family and comfort to take the gospel to places where it currently isn't known. This is what Travis and Rebecca are doing. We've heard reports recently from the team that went over to visit them. This is is what David and Hannah have done. It's it's what Andy and Lindsay hope to do someday. Uh, uh, it's It's what Bondin is thinking about. It's what some of you should be thinking about. It's what some of you that I haven't yet named should be doing with your lives. Increasingly, this world isn't open to the traditional missionary. It's open to people like you and Artemis. Artemis was a lawyer who used, apparently, his skill, his talent as a lawyer to take the gospel to the rest of the Mediterranean world. Perhaps you are the next Artemis, the next person who's going to take Whatever skills God's given you, whatever secular employment God's given you, and put it to work, not just for an employer, but for the sake of the gospel. But but the reality, of course, is you don't have to leave Portland to be deployed for the gospel. So where are you currently? If you're you're a Christian, particularly if you're a member of this church, where are you right now? You're you're in a neighborhood. uh, Maybe you're in a school. Uh, you're, You're in a workplace. Maybe you're in a club. You've got a circle of acquaintances and friends. Brothers and sisters, are you there, wherever there is, as someone who's been sent? Someone who's been deployed by his commanding officer? Or are you, when push comes to shove and we really kind of boil it all down, are you basically self-employed? You're kind of just there for you, working for you. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Brothers and sisters, who are you trying to please in the place where you've been deployed? When you, when you, when you look at your own life, Who are you trying to please? That'll tell you who your real commanding officer is. If it's not Jesus, then today, do what Christians do. Repent. And decide that today, you're going to start living your life wherever you've been deployed, as someone who's been deployed. As someone who is living to please his commanding officer. Don't overlook the fact that that for two of these four guys that I've mentioned, this is their only mention in the New Testament. I think that's significant. Jeff actually called this to my attention this week, and I think he was exactly right. God does not need everyone to be an Apollos. God does not need everyone to be a Paul in order to, to send the gospel to the ends of the world. God 
uses ordinary men and women like you, like me, to advance the good news of the gospel. He even uses lawyers. And if he can use lawyers, he can use you. I'm sure of it. So a productive life guards the gospel. A productive life deploys for the gospel. Finally, let's consider the congregations there uh, on Crete. Look at verse 13 again. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Finally, a productive life promotes the gospel. A productive life promotes the gospel. Apollos and Zenos have brought Titus this letter, and now Titus and the churches are to do all that they can to speed these two men on their way. The the language that Paul uses there in verse 13 is the language of giving them financial and practical provision. The church is to spend itself so that these men who are not going to stick around and serve them. That's important. They're not going to stick around and serve the churches in Crete. Nevertheless, the church in Crete is to spend itself for them so that they have everything they need. So that they lack nothing. And then Paul broadens it out in verse 14. He kind of draws the application. These, these Cretans are people, these Cretan Christians... And remember how Cretans were described at the beginning of the book, back in chapter 1. Lazy gluttons is the way Paul described them. These Cretans are to learn to devote themselves to good works for daily necessities. That's the, the language Paul uses there. It sounds like, actually, Paul is telling them to be hard workers so that they can provide for themselves. But, but in fact, that's not at all the context, as we've seen It's not all the context of of the passage that that phrase daily necessities might be better translated as urgent necessities. It's literally necessary needs. In other words, what Paul's telling the, the churches there in Crete is they need to learn to devote themselves to good works in order to provide for the urgent needs of the gospel. Apollos and Zenos, in that sense, are kind of a test case for them, a first opportunity for them to learn to spend themselves, not on themselves, but but, but on the provision of gospel ministers and and missionaries so that the gospel is advanced and they themselves have have the joy of of being engaged in fruitful, productive lives, Paul says. How are they going to be involved in fruitful, productive lives? Not by spending their lives on themselves. By spending their lives to see the gospel advance. Verse 14 is not a proof text for the Protestant work ethic or the pursuit of the American dream. It's a command that we learn to give ourselves and to give our treasures for the furtherance of gospel ministry. The productive life is the life that's willing to be spent on behalf of the gospel rather than spend itself on itself. And honestly, I think this is something that Henson has had a long history in doing and doing well. And yet I think it's something that we can grow in even more. You know, not everyone can be sent 
to foreign fields of labor. Not, not everyone is gifted for vocational ministry, but everyone can spend themselves and their treasures to see the gospel go forward. And, and it starts right here. It starts with, with, with generously supporting the work of this local church. So you heard it said last week from Jeff, let me say it again as your, as your pastor, your senior pastor, well done, Henson. It, for the first time in living memory, you all not only met our budget, our fiscal year budget, you exceeded it. Well done. Friends, that's, that's what it means to begin to spend ourselves for the sake of the gospel. Because meeting a budget isn't just meeting a budget. Meeting a budget means providing so that the preaching of God's word goes forward every single Sunday. Your giving actually allows the Lawrence family to be here. Preaching God's word. Proclaiming God's word to you and to everybody else that listens. Of course, it does more than just support the Lawrences. It supports the Changs. It supports the Shriners. It supports the entire church staff as we work to serve you so that the gospel ministry goes forward. That's what a budget is. A budget is people. A budget is ministry. And you all gave yourself to that. Well, well done. We're, what, four weeks into a new budget? Let's do it again. Let's not let 2012, 2013 be a blip in the history of Henson. Let's do it again. Let's, let's actually do it better. Let's, let's have a surplus so large that the elders actually have to have a special meeting to decide what to do with it and how to spend it for gospel ministry. And, and then we have to call a special congregational meeting so that we can present it to you and you get to have part of the joy in figuring out what are we going to do with this extra money, not to spend on ourselves, but so that the gospel goes out and forward. It goes, it goes far beyond our budget. I mean, we've got things like the Siemens Fund and, and the Helen Bruce Fund, which are special funds that support the training of pastors and special missionary projects. I mean, you, you understand that, that our residency program, our pastoral residency program, which starts in just a few days with our second class, four more guys coming in that we're seeking to train for gospel ministry, that, that, that residency program is partly funded out of our budget and it's partly funded out of the Siemens Fund. And giving either to the budget or to the Siemens Fund is basically a way that we together as a congregation help to speed young ministers on their way. To, to provision them so that they lack nothing for the next 20, 30, 40 years of pastoral ministry someplace else. Just like the Cretan church, provisioning these two men that are not sticking around, we have a chance to do that. I mean, it, go, it goes on, giving generously so that we can expand our, our missions budget. Henson has always had a wonderful commitment to missions, and that has not faded, that has not flagged at all. But it could still grow. We, we want to continue to support the missions that we're currently supporting. But wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to expand into new and unreached areas where the gospel is not currently being preached? And wouldn't it be wonderful when some of our young people who are now preparing and thinking and planning about going overseas for mission work, wouldn't it be wonderful that when they're ready to go, we're ready to come on board supporting them? 
You know, that's not just going to happen automatically. That, that, that doesn't happen at the drop of a hat. Our missions budget today is fully committed. There is no space for anyone extra. And yet I, I mentioned the Matsuokas. I, I, I mentioned Bondin. There are actually a whole group of, of, of folks coming from the youth group and in the college group who are actively beginning to pursue being able to go overseas. Will we be ready to send them when they are ready to go? It's not just money, though. God has gifted this congregation to provide for the work of ministry here and abroad in time and in talent and in expertise as well. There's so many ways where we've seen this. All the, the, the hundred plus volunteers that helped at Hinson Summer Camp a couple of weeks ago. People who, who volunteer every week in various ministries around the church. And I don't know of a single ministry that couldn't use more of them. I, even the church office could use more volunteers. So if you've got time during the regular work day, we could use your help. Or, or I think about the, the group that just went over to visit Travis and Rebecca, that, that short-term project. You know, there are lots of opportunities for that, to take your specific personality and gifts and, and attach it to a short-term team and go over and try to encourage a long-term worker. There are young people to be mentored. There's discipling that needs to go on. There's, there's strengthening the work of this church. And this has everything to do, right here locally, this has everything to do with our commitment to mission to the world. One of the things that I heard often when I was a pastor in D.C., I haven't been here long enough to hear it from, from our missionaries here, but I think they would agree. But one of the things over the decade or so that I was in D.C. that I heard often from, from missionaries was how discouraging it was when they were on the field and they would hear about one of their supporting churches beginning to drift from faithfulness. But, but on the other hand, how empowering it was, how encouraging it was in their ministry to be connected to a faithful and strong sending church that they could count on, not just to be sending the money, but that they, they could count on to be doing the good work of the gospel here at home, even while they were trying to do the good work of the gospel overseas. That that knowledge, that the folks back home are just as busy at the work as I am here overseas, that that knowledge was wind in their sails. That knowledge encouraged them. It spurred them on to keep at it when they got discouraged. Because they knew that that church I'm connected with back home, they're keeping at it too. They are fully in the fight. They're not just sending a check. They're not just praying for me. They're doing the same work where they are. And then how helpful it was to be able to come back to that church. To be, to be refreshed when they were on sabbatical. To, to, to rest, to be encouraged. You know, the Nels arrive here tomorrow, I think. Tonight, actually. So Willem and Carol Nell arrive tonight. These are longtime supported workers of ours. They are, are, are working uh, in, in Mozambique in a very difficult area, in a very needy area for the gospel. They're going to be with us for a month. How could we provide for them so that when they go back to Mozambique, 
they feel like they lack nothing. That'd be a great thing to talk about over lunch. How could you provide for them even this month? You know, we get the privilege of being part of of worldwide gospel work, whether or not we ever leave these shores. As we send, as we support, as we provide, as we pray, as we preach, as we disciple here at home. Is there even more we could be doing to send? Other ways that we could allow ourselves to be spent for the furtherance of the gospel? I'm going to give you one more idea, and that's Jeff and Chelsea Lassine. You know, they've come here to do the pastoral residency program. But Lord willing, by January, Jeff will be the new pastor of Selwood Baptist Church in an attempt to revitalize that work in that neighborhood. Some of you should go with them. I don't know who. I actually don't want to lose any of you. But I'm convinced that some of you should go with them. Because we're not here to spend our lives on ourselves. We're here to be spent for the gospel. It's not something we learn in the classroom. It's on the job learning. Just as a craftsman gets better at his craft, the more he does it, so do we. As we give ourselves actively to push the gospel out. Paul concludes, and so should I. Verse 15. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. He sends them greetings from all that are with him to all that are there with Titus. Grace be with you all. All summer we've been thinking about our life together. And and there it is, actually, I think in that last verse, summed up for us. The Christian life is not about the solitary life. The Christian life is not about the self-centered life. We are in it together. Together we've received grace from God. We've, We've been rescued together. And now together we live that grace out. In lives of godliness and love, produced by sound theology, building one another up so that the gospel goes forward and is commended by us together to all. Let's pray that Henson Henson Baptist Church is such a church, that it is a church that commends the gospel to all because it is lived out by all. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege that it is to have been ransomed by your son, to have been rescued and brought into your body. Father, we pray that we would not take it for granted, that we would not rest easy in Zion, but that we would be now men and women together, a a church that is eagerly spending itself for the sake of the gospel willingly deployed for Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for perseverance. We pray that you would increase those who have been ransomed and are now at work with us. And we pray this to the end that Jesus Christ in his name and his sufficiency and his grace would be magnified. In his name we pray. Amen.